This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. You have heard, if you've been listening to this radio station, if you've been reading newspapers, if you've been watching TV, if you've been on the internet, if you have been talking to people, if you've been at a coffee shop, if you've been at a neighbor's house, if you, shall I continue? If you've been anywhere over the last number of weeks and you are an adult of voting age in the province of Ontario, there is a very good chance that you have heard about the election. Now, if you haven't heard about the election, if you're saying, oh, what election? Might be time to pay a little more attention, honestly. But if you do know, if you know we're having a provincial election, and I assume that 99.9% of you do, that's an unscientific poll, but I'm going to go with it. You have probably by this point, because it generally, people generally make up their minds, I would think, I believe, pretty early, at least leaning one way or another, you've probably come up with some idea of who you are going to vote for. Or, based on other polls, who you are not going to vote for. Huge numbers of people in this province right now looking like they are leaning towards casting a ballot against somebody. They're not really thrilled with the options. And let's be honest, who could be? Who really could be thrilled with the options? We have three hardly inspiring options. Now, maybe you take issue with that. Maybe you say, no, 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 this party or this party, they're they're fantastic. I love them. I love everything about their policy. Okay, that's fine. But for most people, what you hear is, ah, you know, I believe in voting. I want to vote. I feel a responsibility as a person living in a democratic society to cast a ballot, but who in the world am I going to vote for? I'm going to have to plug my nose and spin the wheel of vote and see what comes up. There are tons of people who don't know, who don't have someone they want to vote for, only they want to vote against. Global News did a poll that just came out says 46% of NDP voters, so almost half of those who are right now talking about voting for the NDP, are doing it specifically to stop the Liberals or the Conservatives from winning. Now, good for the NDP for picking up the votes, but it doesn't necessarily suggest there is a deep and abiding love for the policies, simply that there is a deep and abiding hatred for the policies of those on the other side. The numbers are not all that great for either of the other parties, by the way. It's not like any of these parties, Doug Ford, Andrea Horvath, Kathleen Wynne, none of them seem to be crushing it with you and bringing you out of your seat wanting to vote for them. You're wanting, it seems, to vote against. But I want to turn to you. I want to open the phone lines because at this point, we're only two weeks, a little more than two weeks from the election. I'm guessing that some of you even if you haven't made up your mind, absolutely, you at least have a leaning at this point. You're at least thinking of which way you're going to vote. I'd love to know. I'd love to just bring you on quickly and say, which way are you going here? We're not, we're not holding you to this. We don't know your name. We don't know your address. We're not going to come to your house and make sure that you follow through. I'd just love to know which way you're leaning or if the way you're leaning right now is not toward a party, but away from a party. Or away from parties, because that seems to be one of the one of the 
Well, it's a common denominator, let's be honest, in recent elections. How did, how did Justin Trudeau become our prime minister? Many people decided they did not want any more of Stephen Harper, and they voted against Stephen Harper. The NDP in the federal election were not really an issue. So it was you either vote for Stephen Harper or you vote for Justin Trudeau if you want to have a change. That's how Justin Trudeau won. I mean, yeah, sunny ways and all that stuff, I suppose that resonates with some people. Justin Trudeau was a protest vote against the establishment, against Stephen Harper, who'd been in office for a period of time. Justin Trudeau is the prime minister today, not because, and I believe this wholeheartedly, you can take issue with me if you want. Justin Trudeau is prime minister today, not because his policies made people stand up and cheer and they and everybody thought his policies are going to be fantastic from top to bottom. No, they just decided it was time for a change. By the way, the numbers, I forgot to give them to you. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Love to know who you're leaning towards voting for or who you're leaning towards voting against. Let me know. But Justin Trudeau gets in because we want change. Down south of the border, do you think that too many people voted for Donald Trump or for Hillary Clinton? I mean, they technically they did. They had to check them off or pull the lever or whatever in the voting booth. So yes, technically, practically, they put the check mark beside that person's name for president. But you'll never convince me that Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, the majority of the voting that was done for them was simply as a counterbalance because they couldn't stand to vote for the other one. I'm voting for Hillary because I can't stand Donald Trump. I'm voting for Donald Trump because I can't stand Hillary Clinton. That's how Donald Trump got in. Hillary Clinton was simply hated a little bit more than Donald Trump in certain places. Actually, she won the popular vote, so he was hated a little more, but he was hated a little less in some of the important breakdowns of different geographical areas in the college of electoral college. So And now we have three leaders, two of whom are generally not very well thought of at this point. There's not too many people who are feeling great love for Kathleen Wynne, not too many people feeling too much love for Doug Ford. Andrea Horvath, not too many people, I don't think, feeling too much love for the platform or for the party, but she kind of comes off as a little more benign, and therefore, look who's suddenly in the lead. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. We all need some help because who do you vote for in this election? By now, you've made up your mind to some degree. There's nobody out there, I can't believe, who doesn't have a leaning one way or the other. The Ipsos poll that Global News did, 64% of Ontarians responded that they are voting for a particular party because they prefer it over the others. However, the number of voters, according to Daryl Bricker from Ipsos, the number of voters casting ballots to strategically oust another party is extremely high during this election, he says. The figures show a large portion of the population voting against something rather than voting for something. So when you cast your ballot, have you given any thought, and you've given thought, have you come to any kind of conclusion about who you're going to vote for And failing that, is there someone that you are simply saying, I got to cast a ballot because I got to vote against this person? Is that driving you in this election? Terry joins me now on the Scott Radley Show. Terry, how are you tonight? Very good, thanks. 
Great. What uh, Are you voting for someone, or are you voting against someone in this election? No, I'm voting for the, the philosophical party that I align with, and I think uh, I'm a conservative, I'll just say that. But I think part of the problem in society is that people don't know what they are, and, you know, they're continually flip-flopping for no apparent reason. I mean, I totally agree with you about about how uh, Mr. Trudeau became prime minister, but but this uh, this voting, uh, you know, non-philosophical voting uh, gets us in a lot of trouble. I mean, and, you know, I was around in 1990 when we got into that trouble for five years for, you know, no apparent reason. So that, that kind of bothers me more than anything, uh, is that people don't know what they are. And, you know, you can't, to me, it's philosophical. So, uh, you know, I get the I get the anti-win, anti-anti-everybody, but I think you got to know what you are and stick with it. Terry, I appreciate your call. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, you know, and, and I'll say the same thing the other way, because, I, I mean, I believe this. If Andrew Scheer wins and becomes prime minister next time when we have a federal election, I'm not sure that it's going to be because he said something or did something that was so wonderful that drove everybody to suddenly be a conservative. I think it's because they're just, they'd be voting that they're tired of Justin Trudeau and, and what he does and what he is and how he's carrying on. The issue is we seem to, and Terry touches on something here. Terry touches on something important. We don't seem to have anymore a philosophical or a political base, an anchor personally. For each person, I mean, we don't have a place that we say, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. We have a lot of anger. We don't like anybody to be in power for a long period of time. And if they are, we want to get rid of them. And we're not really, it doesn't seem like if you look at the numbers, it doesn't seem like we're necessarily really picking who or why we just want to get rid of somebody. And then when we want to get rid of somebody, what's been the message, I think, I think so far, the now we've got weeks to go before the election, a couple of weeks, things can change, things can change very rapidly. But the message so far is, I don't like Kathleen Wynne, we definitely want to get rid of the liberals, all right? They're, I mean, they're getting pummeled in the polls right now. It would take an act of God to have the liberals form the next government. It just would at this point. And that's not me talking, that's the polls talking. But then they say, okay, we want to change, but uh, I'm not really a fan of Doug Ford. I can't vote for Doug Ford. So then who's left? Well, Andrew, well, I'm not really a fan, but you, what are you going to do? You've got two choices. You vote while plugging your nose for someone you don't really support to stop someone you support even less, or you don't vote at all and you leave it up to other people to make the decision for you. Steve joins me now on the show. Steve, how are you tonight? I'm good, and yourself? I'm doing great, thank you. So I asked the same question. Are you voting for or against someone in this election? Um, I would say I'm voting for. Um, I, I tend to be a conservative, although I have been thinking that, uh, you know, I could go with uh, Horvath as well. Um, I don't like some of the things she's come up with lately, um, especially that um, sanctuary province. Mm-hmm. I really got a problem with that. Um, I really don't want win. And the, the reason I could go with either is because a lot of the policies of all the parties are, tend to be the same. They're all giving daily child care, this, that. Um, 
but they don't tend to explain uh, what they're doing with it. Uh, like, who's it going to exactly apply to? Um, like the daycare. Do people have to go out and work? Can you get daycare? They, well, there's always. Steve, you're right. i got to go. There's always, and thank okay. you for the call. I appreciate it. There's always right. these gray areas that they leave because they every politician, every stripe, they don't want to be specific because they don't want to narrow down who might think that's a great idea. Got just a couple seconds here. Doris, how are you tonight? I'm fine, thank you. Are you voting for someone or are you voting against someone in this election? I'm voting for someone. Wow, we've got three for three in the voting for. Who are you voting for, if you don't mind saying? No, I won't tell you, but okay. let me give you a little bit of history that it sounds to me, because I'm 75. Okay. And these people, there's, there's so many millennials, so many who are in their 40s, don't remember Harris days. They don't remember Ray days. They don't remember that the policies and the things that the PCs did, like selling the 407 for profit or dividing the hydro. They're the ones who divided hydro into two, not the liberals or whatever. (laughs) And you can't allow a person who says to the unions, like someone like Andrew Horvath has said, she will not allow or she will not institute a, a, a group having to be forced to go back into negotiating. Well, the York University kids have lost their years. They've lost, yeah, absolutely. Doris, I I must run. I've got to go to a break, but I sincerely appreciate your call. Thanks for calling in tonight. You're welcome. Bye-bye. That is, um, look, there's three for three. I'm shocked. I thought at least somebody, because the polls are all saying people are voting against. Maybe, Maybe the polls are wrong. Polls are never wrong, are they? You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. For many years now, there have been people, one in particular, who has been on a search for the holy grail of sports memorabilia, the Ark of the Covenant of sports memorabilia, to continue the metaphor. About 20 years ago, 25 years ago, Sports Illustrated came out with a list of the 25 items that were the holy grails of missing sports memorabilia. It was things like the gold medal from the Olympics that Muhammad Ali threw into, I think, the Mississippi River. I can't remember what river he threw it into. In frustration one day. Um, other things. Unbelievable, valuable, fascinating items. And on that list was a Hamilton Tigers sweater from 1925. The last year that Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, had an NHL team. It was 1925. We had the Hamilton Tigers. They were going into the Stanley Cup Finals to play the Montreal Canadiens. However, that year, the season was extended from 24 to 30 games, and the league and the team didn't want to pay the players any extra money. So prior to the finals, the players decided to go on strike. Well, the league suspended them all. The team was sold to New York to become the New York Americans, and that was the last time we ever had an NHL team here in this city. Well, their shirts, though, their sweaters, apparently were still out there. Someone believed there was a sweater out there. And my next guest, Russ Boychuk, was a man who has led this quest to try and find this sweater, which may, and we'll get to it in a minute, may have a happy ending. But, Russ, thanks for joining me tonight. Hey, Scott. I'm glad to be here. So uh, lots of people are interested in sports memorabilia in finding rare artifacts, whether it's sports or not. And lots of people are interested in the history of this team, but you have taken this to a new level. What, where does your fascination with this sweater and your desire to find this come from? 
Well, uh, it comes from a, a number of areas. Uh, I grew up in Hamilton, Caledonia, and uh, playing hockey uh, as a kid and everything else like that. And I, I always had the old wool sweaters back in the early 60s, the late 50s, and stuff like that. So, And then uh, watching Hockey Night in Canada and then the expansion to 12 teams and then so many more American teams. And I said, how come Hamilton doesn't have a team? We And I did research, and we, we did have a team. So I said, well, there's nothing in the Hall of Fame, and there's and as a, as a teenager, I and as a young man, I go, holy jeez, how come? Why is there no Hamilton Tigers sweaters around? The team only played for five years. They use three different kind of sweaters, but it is the only pro team in North America where there is a defunct team that there is no sweater in any museum or anybody in collection that we know about. So. Uh, I, I, I thought well, it'd be great to find the, the thing, and I went through old stores and memorabilia shops, always looking for one. But when people, when I'd ask, people would just look at me and say, "Hey, no." When even it was an afterthought, people just forgot Hamilton had a team like we fell off the map. There was several years ago, maybe twenty years ago now. There was a story, and I, I've never known if this is. Well, I've never known what to make of this story. There was a memorabilia dealer in this city who said he had one of these sweaters, and after a threat that somebody was going to come to town and shoot somebody, if he didn't start <laughs> selling his memorabilia, he sold this to somebody he never saw again. Um, I don't know. If, I, I don't know what to make of that story. But do you believe that there was one in our city until? As I say, within the last ten or fifteen years, somewhere. Do you believe that existed? Yes, I do. Uh, you know, because uh, I think in the mid nineties, ninety five, ninety six, that store down in Barton Street, uh, Angelo Savelli's um, uh, memorabilia store, Joel Halsman from Kineski's and everything else, he actually remembers seeing it in the front window of his store on a mannequin. So, and Joel took a look at it. And Joel's a hockey guy, and so he would know. You know, so I believe him. And um, so. I, I think that he sold it. He sold it for we varying amounts of money. One day he says five hundred bucks, another hundred bucks, and a thousand dollars. And he said he sold it to an older fellow who just walked off the street that uh, that looked at it and said he wanted to buy it. So who knows? But um, but it existed. I believe that, sorry, but it existed. We believe that it was yeah, actually yeah. there, and and yeah. we believe that it was a legitimate Hamilton Tiger sweater. I mean, there's no way we could prove that, but that that's the belief that it was a legitimate sweater. Yes, and it, it did have the 12 stripes on the sleeves as opposed to the 8 stripes on the sleeves that the senior Hamilton Tigers who played in the city at the same time and had the same sweater uh, used. So not to be confused with the <laughs> Tiger senior sweater. So the search begins because now there, we've not, other than this one, and this was the only one we've seen in the last number of generations, right? This is the only one that we're aware of, correct? That's right. We have never seen the first two uh, versions of it. The one that was in from 1920 to 21 with the walking tiger, or I mean the tiger's head, the ugly tiger head that looks like <laughs> it was done uh, by some rank amateur, or else uh, the middle year tiger, the prowling tiger, which looks like, uh, well, I don't know what it looks like. But then when they came out in 23, 24, 24, 25, 26, with the classic H with the tigers on the H and the stripes and like that that they they nailed it there you're listening to the scott radley show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 chml
Russ Boychuk with us. He has been searching for years now to try and find the a surviving 1925 Hamilton Tigers sweater. Russ, where has this search taken you? Because you've been a lot of places to try and find this. Yeah, we've been, we've been all over North America and all through the museums and hockey shrines in Europe and everything else like that. So we're looking for any sweater from 20, 1920 to 1925, any sweater that any of the 33 players that have worn and played for the Hamilton Tigers NHL team in that period. We're, and so we've been to Montreal, New York City, down to Philadelphia, um, visiting different sporting goods stores and collectors and uh, museums, but everything, everything turned up empty. Going through basements and boxes and chasing down wild leads <laughs> and knocking on doors and being chased by dogs and running through snowbanks and uh, it was just it's just all over the place. Did you ever, at any point, did you think you were finding it? Did you think you were close only to be disappointed? Well, yes, uh, we were at um, uh, Mr. Gardner's place, who's a grandson of Gardner that played for the team, and we were in his basement in a West End Toronto, East End Toronto home, and he took us down there and he showed me the sweater, all wrapped in plastic, and it was a New York American sweater from 1926, ah. and it had the H and the T on it, uh, because they put H and T above the Americans to signify Hamilton Tigers. But by the way... Um, the franchise didn't get sold to uh, New York; just the players did. So when we get it, when we do get our NHL team back, when uh, we can still pick up the original records of the Hamilton Tigers from 1920 to 1925. So uh, we won't start from day one because the the corporation, uh, which we bought out of uh, insolvency, uh, it can continue as the, if, if the new owner or whoever moves the team here so wishes. So you've been on this search to try and find this sweater, and a little while ago you get an email from a couple of guys who now say they think they have found this sweater. And I'm guessing, again, because of the fact that you have been down this road a few times, you sort of roll your eyes and say, yeah, I'm sure they have. But you go and meet with them, and they tell you the story of finding it in a golf course, and they then reach into a bag and pull out a sweater. And what is your reaction when you see what they pull out? Well, first of all, I thought, well, here go. Uh, I wasn't expecting the original because I thought this is probably another senior Hamilton Tiger sweater from the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, and then when I see it, I go, oh my God, there's something different about that. Just the feel of it, the in between my fingers and the felt, um, the felt Hamilton Tigers crest that was sewn on, and just the. It, it, it just looked that way. And then I saw the stripes on the the sleeves. There was 12 stripes. 12 black stripes instead of um, uh, eight. So then I thought, okay, this this could be an original. So yeah, then then the heart starts pumping. <laughs> I mean, it's Spring been so <laughs> it's been so long since you've been looking. It's got to be uh, probably a weird combination of real excitement and almost oh man, our our quest here is over in a sense. Yeah, it was it was anxiety and anticipation just to nail it down and get it right. But there's always that thing: don't get too excited because it might not be the one. But you know, you were mentioning we're all going all over North America looking for it and everything else like that. And the actual pole barn, the old greenskeepers' uh, barn, was on a farm in Burlington that the golf course expanded in the 80s or 90, 80s, and the farmer who retired sold the back 200 acres and they put this pole barn up where the sweater was found that was moved there after and that was actually my uncle casey bogosowski and i had passed that location where the sweater was 
resting all those years, all my childhood bailing hay. Right. You know? So the two How guys, the two guys who found this worked at Hidden Lake Golf Course in Burlington, and when Hidden Lake expanded and bought those acres from the farmer, the farmer was your uncle, and it was on his property, which it is. It's a, it's a bizarre twist of the story. <laughs> now, here's the trick. We only have a minute or two left. Here's the twist in this thing, because while it sounds like and it appears that you have finally found this sweater, everything points towards it. Even Phil Pritchard, the guy who has the white gloves who presents the Stanley Cup, Burlington guy who is also the curator of the Hockey Hall of Fame, he thinks it's the real deal. But you still don't know for sure because the sweater was not belonging to the guys who found it. They gave it to someone else who apparently has given it to someone else, and now it seems to be back in the wind. Yes, that, that's, it seems to be back in the wind. You're right. And that, that is a bit of the scary part. But we know, we know that, well, thanks to your article today, it was a great article, great-looking picture on the front page of the place on myself. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks to that article, I've been getting texts and messages all day from just leads, like people saying, hey, 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 look at this. Hey, what about this? So hopefully this uh, article will generate some, um, some talk, and maybe one of the 30 or 40 people that had access to that pole barn in the last 20 years will come forward and say, yes, that, that's my uncle's, or that's my late father's, or that's my grandfather's bin, and yes, it is indeed a Hamilton Tiger sweater. So yeah, because be the- yeah, because right now, uh, because that sweater is now somewhere with someone, the Hall of Fame has not been able to examine it to do an official certification that this is a legitimate 1925 Hamilton Tiger sweater. So, I, I mean, on the one hand, Russ, I suppose that it kind of is disappointing. On the other hand, it's kind of keeps the story alive a little bit and keeps the mystery alive. There's something kind of dramatic about not knowing still, but I, I'm sure you would like to have an answer one way or another. Oh, for sure. You know, and overall, people have said to me before, hey, we signed the sweater, we removed the curse of Hamilton not having an NHL team, and then maybe things will be finally going our way. Cops Coliseum is only, it's never going to be finished. Madison Square Garden's been renovated a lot older and been renovated eight different times. We can still put Cops Coliseum up to NHL standard. Gee, I wish it was a standard so we can have the, the uh, Memorial Cup yeah, here well. this year, but that's another thing. Good luck, Bulldogs. Uh, Russ Boychuk, uh, listen, I hope it works out. I hope you find Oh, by the way, we only have five seconds. What are you going to do if you find it? Are you going to buy it, or is it going to go to the Hall of Fame? What do you hope happens? Well, we want to purchase it and donate it to the Hockey Hall of Fame where it should be. Appreciate the time. You can go read more about this. It's in the paper today. It's on thespec.com as well. You can read it online. Russ, thanks for the time today. Thanks, Scott. That is, uh, it's a great story of, it's a great story because it's such a historic piece of our city's fabric, literally and figuratively. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. I don't usually do this, but I want to give a shout out to Tony, who listens every single night in New Jersey as he's driving home from work. Spends two hours with us every single night. Tony, how are you? <laughs> say, uh, say hi to people down in New Jersey for us. I didn't know we had an audience in New Jersey, but hey, that's good. All right, it is... um. It is Wednesday. It is 6.51. We don't necessarily have it always at this time in the week, but we're doing it right now. Once a week, every week, we do a little something called Ben's Story of the Day. Ben, who is the guy behind the glass who's pressing the buttons and making the music go and keeping our show on the air. I find I bring three of the most ridiculous stories from around the world. I share them, and Ben chooses which one is his story of the day. We will start today in Clearwater Beach, Florida, 
where a man by the name of Otis Dwayne Ryan, who I must tell you, his face is heavily tattooed up so he looks like a 1970s goalie mask at all times. He's got an onk, one of those Egyptian cross, loopy top thing, crosses tattooed on his face. He's got... Anyway, he's, a, he's, a, he's an interesting looking dude. Anyway, he was arrested because for some reason, and it's unclear why in this article, he decided to go to a children's park, jump up on top of the swing set, stand on there, and in very loud and apparently vulgar tones, decided to give all of the children a birds and the bees explanation of where babies come from <laughs> as mummy is pushing them on their swings. He is telling them that babies come out of women and using very raw terminology when explaining exactly where and how they come out of women. Uh, he was arrested. He's been fined $118 in order to stay away from the park. Uh, you know, they didn't put in there that he probably should not be giving any more biology lessons. That should have been a term of his release. Anyway, that is uh, that is story number one today. The guy who shows up at the park and decides to teach all the little kids about where they came from. Number two, I love this one. It comes to us from Maine. Now, I don't know if they owned this item or were stealing it or borrowing it or what the situation was, but three men in Maine have been arrested after caught, after being caught stealing, in the process of stealing, a 25-foot shed. Now, that's... You know, it's pretty hard to hide a 25-foot shed. That's a, that's not an easy thing to get away with. It's not something you stuff in your pocket and walk away with. But simply stealing a shed is one thing. You throw it on the back of a flatbed truck and you drive away somehow. That's one thing. These guys didn't bother with the flatbed truck. They hooked the shed onto some kind of a pickup truck and dragged it down the road. <laughs> Just It's now a pickup truck pulling a shed along the road. I mean, the shed was probably going to lose a foot of height by the time it got there from grinding down. Um, the troopers arrived to find the shed still being dragged and now blocking half the road. Uh, all three men were charged with theft by unauthorized taking. I love that charge. Theft by unauthorized taking. That's what theft is, isn't it? Why do you have to... Theft is unauthorized taking. The folks down in Maine are, are repeating themselves. Anyway... I've never seen anyone just attach a building to a pickup truck and drive it away just along the street, just by a chain. But there you go. They, that's what they're arrested with. And number three on the list of possibilities for Ben's story of the day comes to us also from Florida. It's busy down in Florida these days. <sighs> Got a, Some people may not find this as funny as I do, but there is some... Um, let me just read the headline and then I'll get to the story because I, I can't do any more justice than this. Florida man arrested after hiding legless fugitive girlfriend in storage bin. <laughs> I guess his girlfriend had been involved in a robbery several years ago and had both of her legs blown off. <laughs> That's not funny. But she still remained in trouble with the law, clearly. She's hanging out with the wrong people. So she is now wanted on another warrant. And the police come to the house, her boyfriend's house. He doesn't want to have her get found, so he picks her up and shoves her in a garbage bin, <laughs> which I guess fits her at this point. Well, the deputies come in, and I don't know how they decided to look in the garbage bin, but they did, and there she was, the legless girlfriend in the garbage bin. Um, they've both been charged now with um, 
a variety of things. I don't even know what charges. So anyway, Ben, there are your choices. You can either have the heavily tattooed, face-tattooed Florida guy giving the kids lessons on the birds and bees. You can have the three idiots who are stealing a shed by attaching it to a pickup truck and dragging it with no trailer down the middle of the road. Or you can have the Florida man stuffing his legless fugitive girlfriend into a storage bin to help her hide from the police. Which will be your story of the day? You did not make it easy for me, but I'm going to have to say the guys that stole a shed. Because I imagine all the planning that went into this. You know, Probably like, very little. Exactly. Or you just had like, Billy, we're going for the big one. We're going for the shed. We're, we're taking the 25er down the street. I, I mean, I've heard of guys trying to use a pickup truck like to pull an ATM machine out of a store. I don't, I, how, I just can't picture stealing a house. It's, it sounds like something in a cartoon. It's like in the movie Up. That would have been a better idea now that I say it. Strap a whole lot of helium balloons to the shed and fly it to where you're going and then shoot it down with BB guns. That would have worked. Trailing it in a pickup truck, that's just stupid. There's Ben's story of the day. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. There is a story that is beginning here in Hamilton. I mean, it's been going on for a while. I refused to mention it for the longest time until something actually happened. Well, something has happened. Now, Johnny Menzel has, in fact, landed at Hamilton Tiger Cats training camp. He is now the newest member of the Tiger Cats. He is a former Heisman Trophy winner. He is a wildly controversial figure who has had moments of brilliance followed by moments of personal combustion. But he is now here... As is Rick Zamperin of 900 CHML, sports director and a variety of other tasks here. Rick, thanks for doing this today. Scott, my pleasure. How are you? I am well. Now, I, I wanted you on here because there is there are very few people in this city that know football, and I'm not just saying this to butter you up, which, by the way, butter up will be a word we're going to be, a phrase we're going to be sorting out at the bottom of this hour in case anyone is wondering, why do we say butter someone up? Anyway, uh, <laughs> I don't want to just butter you up. You are a guy who knows as much about football as anyone else in this city. So I want to do the Johnny Manziel thing because we have avoided it at this po- for a while because I didn't, as I say, I didn't want to do it until it actually happened. I thought it was getting silly. Is Johnny Manziel going to be the greatest thing that ever happened to the Thai Cats, or is he going to be a disaster? <sighs> well, I don't. I don't think you know the odds are against him that he's going to be the greatest Thai Cat ever, and I don't think he's going to be. A disaster. At least, maybe I'm. I'm hoping he's not, for the sake of the franchise, because I think it would just be a, a, an epic fail on their part if, you know, after all this time and all this work and 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 all the money that they're spending, and the fans buying into the hype, and not 100% of the fans, but many of them, I, I think it would just be a huge black mark on this franchise if. And I'm not talking about failure on the field, because we've seen guys who are even more talented than Johnny Manziel fail on the CFL field. But I'm talking about... Personally. If yeah, if there's an off-field incident or, or something happens, and I hope it doesn't for his sake and for the team's sake, that I just think it's going to be one of those cases where fans and, and football pundits come out and say, you know, we told you so. You know, this is, this is a ticking time bomb. So I have my fingers crossed. I don't think he's going to be an embarrassment. I think there is a steep learning curve, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But I don't think, and, and you know, when we're looking at the greatest Thai Cats or the greatest CFL players, I think we've got to spend a considerable amount of time in the league to be even in that conversation. I'm, I'm not sure 
in his heart of hearts, if he's committed to being here in a long, long term. You just hit on a whole bunch of things in there that I want to take apart a little bit. But the first one is the guys who, in the modern era anyway, I, I mean, I wasn't around to be watching Russ Jackson in his prime or Ron Lancaster in his prime. I mean, they were great players, guys like that. But in the modern era, the Anthony Calvillos, the uh, Danny McManuses, the Doug Fluties, these are guys, and, and pick whoever else you want to throw into that category, uh, Damon Allen. These are guys who had tremendous careers, but if you look to a person, it took them at least a couple of years to really figure out the game and become a star. None of them stepped on the field in their first days up in Canada and shredded this league. You know what? It's, it's impossible. I mean, I, I remember... Um you know, having Danny McManus on uh, our our radio on a, on a weekly basis, <clears throat> talking about you know his thoughts on the team and you know where they were going and where he was heading. And I remember asking him at one time, you know, you had a, an illustrious 17 year CFL career, you won great cups, uh, you know, Hall of Famer, uh, epitome of a professional athlete, both on and and especially off the field with with Danny Mac. And I asked him how long. I mean. Literally, did it take you to quote unquote get it that you felt comfortable? You knew when you set foot on the field that you can, you know, dictate a football game. And he said it realistically it took me five years to do so. And he bounced around from team to team, and obviously that was, you know, a factor in that. Uh, and, and obviously playing time goes goes with that. But it really took him five years to to get it, to figure it out, to you know, really. Uh, have it in his mindset that he belonged and he could succeed in the league. So and that's coming from a Hall of Famer. So and a guy who actually played he played at Florida State, right? Yeah. So he played at yeah, a big Hall university. State, yeah. He didn't go to Podunk State University yeah. and show up. I mean, he was a star who came up here as a star. And so the idea, and I think this is a widely held though idea, Rick. I, I really do. And even people who live in Hamilton or live in other Canadian football league cities, I, I still think for many of them there is this perception that the CFL is the lesser league and somebody can come up from the States and be an NFL draft pick and just take the league apart. And it's been proven over and over that you don't, but there's still that perception. There is the perception, and I'm not sure it's ever going to go away because I don't think they realize, you know, that A, the talent level that's up here, and B, they think they can and maybe not all of them, I think most of them come up here thinking, yeah, I'm going to dominate, I'll be back in the NFL in a heartbeat. But I don't think they take into consideration how big of a learning curve the, the nuances of this game are. You know, despite, you know, the one yard off the ball and the three downs, it's probably the two, and, and, and the bigger field, which are probably the two and the extra guy, <laughs> as I add to my list. But, you know, all those factors are you know, key elements of what make this Canadian game so amazing. And, at the same time, so different from the NFL. I mean, you know, you got a 20-second play clock. Uh, you know, you don't have three timeouts uh, per half. Uh, you know, the, the extra guys, the waggles, you know, on and on and on. Now you're adding all of that to, you know, a new playbook, new teammates. Uh, are, are you going to be able to gel in the locker room? So there's so many intangibles that go with, you know, the tangibles of the rule book that uh, the learning curve is is steep. There's no doubt about it. And one of the other things you mentioned there a few moments ago that I, I, I really think you're onto something with this is I don't believe at this point, and I may, uh, you know, two years from now, anyone can come on here and correct me if I'm still here. But 
I don't believe Johnny Manziel is looking Canadian Football League as a long-time option. I really believe that he is looking at the CFL as a stepping stone back to the NFL. And I think if you were to talk to Flutie or McManus or Allen or Calvillo or any of these guys, that is the dangerous place to be. You have to be committed to learning this game and being here in order to be a great, great quarterback in this league. Well, I mean, the only... The only way he's going to get a sniff in the NFL, and if, if his definition of long term is two years, then you know, good luck to him because two years he might be able to accomplish a lot. But he has to produce up here in order to play. And and if he doesn't in the practice field, or if the guy ahead of him, in this case Jeremiah Masoli, plays lights out, he's probably not going to get that opportunity. So that two years might evaporate rather quickly, and he has really nothing on his resume in terms of, you know, substantial game film uh, and leading a team to a division title or, or, or you know, a Grey Cup championship. I mean, if he doesn't have that on, you know, his, his resume of game film, he's probably going to have to stay a little bit longer unless, you know, he does just enough and maybe more importantly stays out of trouble that an NFL team, you know, in two years' time, he's going to be 27 going on 28. An NFL team might say, you know what, we need an experienced backup uh, you know, Manziel has shown that he's A, clean, uh, B, committed, and yeah, maybe he can still play this game. You know, we'll take a swing at it. Uh, but otherwise, he, he might just have to stay up here longer than his, his two-year contract. I had said that no quarterback comes up here and takes apart the league in the first year. Rick has quickly corrected me, and rightly so. Chuck Ely came in 1972 as a rookie, won the Grey Cup and Rookie of the Year. So, yes, okay. there. So there's been one. So there's one there's out of one. Um, you meant now let's go to the other name you just mentioned because I'm wondering out of this whole thing if Jeremiah Mazzoli has fair cause to be a little PO'd at the way things are going because he signed here an extension to come in and everything that we were told was he was going to be the starter and they're still saying he's going to be the starter but I will bet my paycheck that Jeremiah Mazzoli will not be the starter for very long Johnny Manziel is going to be the starter here I think there's a couple of factors in this. I think, number one, you know, Jeremiah was uh, the undisputed number one once Zach Caleros was, uh, you know, dealt to Saskatchewan. But number two, uh, he would have to have realized that, you know, Manziel is still on the Ticats neg list, and there, there was still a possibility, if not a probability, that Manziel would land in Hamilton. But on the other side of things, you know, Ricky Ray is still playing in Toronto, uh, and there, across the league, weren't a lot of opportunities aside from probably Montreal. But did he want to go to a team that is in full rebuild mode and, and, you know, a huge question mark or stay with a team in which he knows his teammates? They really love him in the locker room. He knows the playbook. Uh, had a great time under June Jones in the last, uh, you know, 10 games of the season. Was, was one of the league leaders in terms of passing yardage and, and, and victories in the last 10 games. So I think he took that into consideration. I think he's a battler because, you know, all through the Zach Caleros, uh, Masoli last 10 games of the season, there was outcries, even for me to say, Hey, you know, Caleros has got to get back in there. I still think he has the best chance to, to lead this, um, you know, unit to the playoffs if they have a shot after that 0 and 8 start. But he just kept winning ball games, won six out of the last 10. I just think he has it in his, in his mentality that he's the guy. And until they say he isn't, He's going to go at it like uh, you know the warrior that he is. I really think he has that kind of fighting spirit that uh, you know this is my team now and, and, and it's not going to be taken away from me. However, in saying that, you know one stumble 
and the catcalls from the highest level of Tim Horton Field will be <laughs> raining down on June Jones to say, hey, put number two in. Yeah, his first uh, and, incomplete pass. Yeah. Coach, we need Menzel! Exactly. Or, you know, on the flip side, you know, the Ticats are blowing out, you know, whatever opponent. You know, it's 48-10 to 10 in the fourth quarter, and now the fans want to see Johnny Manziel because the game is in hand. And I know that's a different kind of pressure on June Jones, but if he does put Manziel in and he is absolutely lights out, there are still going to be calls to say, hey, maybe we should start Johnny Manziel. You are such an optimist that you say the Ticats are blowing the team out. You were on the fifth quarter last year when they lost 60-1. to one. I was, but they do play Montreal a few times. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, what kind of attention does this bring? Because I mean, ESPN apparently is up here or is going to be up here tomorrow, is up here today or is going to be tomorrow. Right. Uh, it, once he gets in, I don't think, that, I think it's probably safe to say the Ticats will have never had the kind of attention south of the border anyway that they're going to have when Manziel is in the game. Uh, no, I, I would say not even close. Uh, I, you know, the closest thing that I can kind of relate to the this Manziel uh, hype is Ricky Williams. And, you know, it came under very much different circumstances. You know, here, here was a guy who was booted out of the NFL, suspended for, uh, you know, drug use, uh, took a year off from the NFL, joined, uh, you know, the Toronto Argonauts. And, uh, again, with a different position, there isn't a lot of, you know, uh, super hype over a running back compared to a quarterback. Now you have the Manziel factor and, and all his skeletons uh, playing in the league, being drafted in the first round, um, and just so many more factors in terms of you know the roller coaster ride that he's been on since leaving the NFL, both on and off the field. That uh, he's just such a polarizing figure. And I think mm. football fans, and let's not forget, he played at a major university in Texas A&M, won the Heisman in the freshman year. I mean, just a, an amazing story. I think fans want to see him, a lot of fans want to see him succeed. A lot of fans want to see him crash and burn because they just love a train wreck. And whether that's fair or him to not, that, that's where the fans are coming from, on both sides of the border, I might add. And, and when I say attention, you know, it's ironic that probably the last time the Ticats will have been in the news in the States as much as they will be now is when the whole Art Bryles thing happened, which is a situation they desperately want no part of again with this one. They're hoping and praying that this, that that was the one time thing. Cause if John, I mean, I don't believe, see, I don't believe Johnny Menzel is a dumb person. I really don't. And I don't believe that, I, I think he is very clear that this is his last shot. It's that, I mean, when you look at the contract he signed, Rick, it screams out there is no other option for him. This was the only place he had to go. And I find it really hard to believe that he is going to go get himself loaded in Hess Village one night and punch someone in the face. I just, I find it, I, I, I it could happen, I suppose. It's happened, you know, stuff has happened in the past. I just, I look at this and I think I can't believe that he could possibly be dumb enough to do that. And I don't believe he's a dumb guy. And that's why I think what the Ticats are banking on, that he will, that he's learned his lesson and he's not going to do something that is going to just completely blow up the franchise. Uh, yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I, I think Manziel, knowing that I think this is really his last shot at uh, any kind of football. I mean, if he doesn't survive with the Ticats for any off-field issues, and I'll just stay with the off-field stuff, you know, yeah, there, there's probably going to be a CFL team or two that'll, that'll take a sniff, maybe even take a shot at him, but that's really going to, um, you know, cause a major blow to any of his NFL aspirations. He really has to be a model citizen. And, you know, 
we we know that Randy Ambrosi, the commissioner of the CFL, set out a number of regulations, and that's great. And Menzel adhered to all of them. But you know, it, it it's so easy to break any rule or regulation or standard that the commissioner puts forward because you know if Menzel's put in a situation where he can't handle, uh, he might just uh, you know get into trouble. I think he and the team, especially has to put him in situations where he has to avoid any kind of conflict. So whether that's keeping him, you know, in the in in Tim Hortons field and, you know, on, on non game days, he's either practicing or he's with other teammates that are going to assure that he's not, you know, tempted or even, you know, coerced or anything, uh, incited into any kind of, you know, off field distraction or or incident. I think the team really has to uh, you know, huddle around him and kind of you know, keep him as a bubble boy type thing in terms of not getting uh, him into any trouble or, or, or any temptations that uh, would uh, leave him, uh, you know, in, in, in any sort of trouble. I, yeah, I just, I, I find it so hard to believe that anybody knowing the circumstance that he's in and knowing what he's facing as far as, as you say, the opportunities, because one slip up and it's toast. And here's the thing, as you mentioned, there are a lot of people from the Ticats organization to the commissioner to a lot of other people who have put their necks out for this guy as well. This is, if, if he does blow up, which I don't expect, but if he does blow up, it looks bad all over the place. There's a lot of people wearing egg on their face, not just Johnny Manziel, if that happens. Without a doubt. You know what? They need, uh, I say they have the tie cats. They need, uh, you know, sort of a buddy system. You know, put an assistant coach on them, put a teammate, uh, you know, a team mentor that just hangs around with him. Obviously spreading some knowledge his way, uh, reviewing game film. On those off days, those days where things can, who knows, go awry or something happens, uh, you know, remove that kind of avenue just to have someone around him all the time. And maybe that's, you know, his entourage or, you know, his agent at times, whatever the case is, I think we've got to keep him busy or, or focused, hyper-focused on, on football stuff. And, and, you know, from everything that I've seen and heard and read up until this point is that, you know, he is, you know, committed to the playbook, studying a lot, looking at game film, being, you know, entrenched in everything football. But that's easier to do during training camp because, you know, you're with teammates all the time, you're with coaches all the time, you're in game film, and, and when you're not, you're practicing – uh, or you're in team meetings. So you know, that's easy to do during camp when you're kind of siloed off of society. But come the regular season, and once camp breaks, um, I think everyone kind of takes a deep breath and, and, and hopes like heck that he just is okay. Yeah, I'm not sure I want the entourage as his watching group. No, I mean, as long as those are, are, you know, not the... Uh, yeah, not, let's not, put not, the assistant coach or another player exactly. or someone. Yeah, you know, huddle them up with Gary Glanville and they'll be okay. Just before I let you go, I want to go back to the field for one more second with this, because there are, there is a pro and a con, I'm thinking, with the style that he plays. Uh, not not with, the, I mean, everyone's going to have their opinion. I think he, the fact that he can run, the fact that he can improvise and stuff, that's going to be very positive. But the is it a pro or a con that he and Mazzoli are very similar in some ways? I'm thinking the pro is that if either of them goes down and the other has to come in, that your game plan pretty much stays the same. You don't have to adjust it too much quarterback to quarterback. The con, I suppose, is that if you have to bring the other guy in, you're not really having the opportunity to really throw a change up at the other team and have them give them a different look if something isn't working. Which one would be the dominant side of that? You know, I, I would think, you know, from week to week, um, you know, teams prepare offensively and defensively 
for what the other team is good or bad at. So, you know, if the Ticats are playing Toronto, they know that they can expose certain things, Toronto, uh, you know, offensively, and they can target certain, you know, aspects of Toronto's defense. So because both guys have that same skill set, it's going to come down to probably, you know, if they're both playing well, you know, who's hotter than the other, because uh, there's not much really of a change of pace guy. You know, with Caleros, he wasn't as active running the football as Masoli. So, you know, if June Jones wanted to change the pace, you know, he could sub one guy in for the other. Uh, in this scenario, yeah, both guys run the ball very well. Both guys can throw it, you know, particularly well. It'll come down to that mental kind of aspect of, uh, you know, can I uh, capitalize on what the defense is showing me? Can we dictate, you know, offensively this football game? And with both guys having that same skill set, that might be tough to do. But when it comes down to the playbook, um, if they both know it, then uh, they should be able to execute it, depending, again, on who their opposition is. I do expect there will be a lot of Manziel jerseys when uh, when the season rolls along, and I do expect that you're absolutely right, Rick, that uh, if Jeremiah Mazzoli does in fact start, which I'm not expecting, no matter what anyone says, it will be one incomplete pass or one fumble, and the entire place will be screaming for Manziel. And uh, I hope June Jones has a good set of earplugs or a thick, thick, thick skin, because... Uh, Everybody going to those games is going to be going to those games to see Manziel, not to see Mazzoli. Sorry for Mazzoli. You know, as Ron Lancaster told me once, that the backup quarterback is always the most popular player in the stadium. And it'll be <laughs> true to the nth degree with Mazzoli and Manziel. It'll be fun to watch. Second most popular. First most popular is the host of the fifth quarter on 900 <laughs> CHML. Always. That's coming up this year, I hope. You're doing that again this year, yeah, right? Yeah, we're going to well. be rock and rolling come uh, regular season game number one when uh, the Ticats are in Calgary to take on the defending Western Division. Ooh, team. I remember the last time that happened. It didn't turn out too well. We will talk about that another day when the therapy can kick in. Rick Zamperin, <laughs> thanks for the time. Appreciate it. You got it. Take care. That is, uh, yeah, remember that last time Hamilton was in Calgary? You ho- you're hoping not, right? That was the 60 to 1 game that I was teasing Rick about. 60 to 1. I'll make a prediction. I'll make anyone listening right now a bet. And I don't even bet. When Hamilton goes to Calgary, the score will not be 60 to 1 again. I'll take that bet with anybody for any amount of money. No one take that bet. Don't do it. Don't do it. I don't want to take your money. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.